Welcome to the Scientific Method Podcast. I'm Angela Chen. And I'm Mitch Fogelson. We're two PhD students at Carnegie Mellon University studying topics related to neuroscience, robotics, and AI. We are curious and impressed with how researchers are able to come up with quality questions and clever experiments to discover the answers. Each week, we have conversations with graduate students to discuss their research process to gain insights to improve our academic pursuits. If you're interested in research, grad school, or science in general, this is the perfect podcast for you. In today's episode, we invite Alyssa Johnson to share how she conducts research. Alyssa Johnson is a PhD student in mechanical engineering at the University of Pennsylvania. Her research focuses on electrochemical energy conversion and storage, specifically batteries. Alyssa also earned both her bachelor's and master's degrees in mechanical engineering from the University of Pennsylvania. She is interested in creating battery architectures and multifunctional energy storage systems that can dramatically increase the energy density of portable electronics. Alyssa, welcome to the Scientific Method Podcast. Thanks, happy to be here. In your own words, please describe your research. I work in the realm of batteries. Specifically, I've been working on some projects related to lithium ion batteries, and I have um, some other ongoing projects that are more in the field of you know, multifunctional energy storage systems. I hope that you know, one day my work will help us fundamentally rethink the way that we make and use batteries. In robotics or anytime you're trying to power something portably, batteries are quite useful. But we tend to think about a battery as being an allotted amount of space and weight to be used like only by the battery itself, right? And as a result, it's also common to think about robots power systems as being separate from the rest of the robot and optimize separately. Who said that batteries just have to be this like tiny box or add on chunk of components? Like we don't do this in nature, right? And as humans, we have, um, we kind of eat food when we need more energy. We don't have to recharge ourselves. But additionally, a lot of our organ systems are multifunctional. They don't just do one thing. So why can't we take these concepts and apply them to batteries? Like can we have a battery that also is load bearing or a battery that serve some other mechanical function. And so that's big goal of my work. But day to day, I'm kind of thinking about a little bit more fundamental questions. And I'm a little bit more in the nitty gritty of the specifics. But I like to be reminded of the big picture. It's refreshing to think about the impacts of your work. What motivated you to pursue your research in battery science? So it's interesting, Mitch and I actually have a mutual friend, Ham Zawaki. And I was having a conversation with him at one point during our undergraduate, he was on my senior design team and our senior design project was, it was unique. It was a complicated drone configuration and with flying things, especially power becomes much more of an issue, right? Like it's, it takes a lot of energy to get something off the ground. And so we were thinking a lot about batteries and we had like a, I don't know, we bought some sort of really expensive, ridiculous giant brick battery to power our ridiculously large flying thing. And I guess we were just chatting about this senior design project. And I was kind of talking about how I had always wanted to do something related to, to energy and, and from an environmental perspective was what motivated me initially. And I was like, oh, I can't really decide, you know, what realm of energy I really want to be in. And Cam just kind of made this offhanded comment of like, well, 
batteries are going to be a pretty big deal. So it might be a good idea to get in that area. And, um, and then I ended up taking a class for my master's degree in the chemical engineering department at Penn. I was very fascinated. I learned, if you look at the rate that electrical transistors, for example, have advanced or basically computing power over time. Like this has been like an exponential growth, right? We have Moore's law, but if we look at batteries, the growth has really been much less significant. And a part of this problem is actually because there's an inherent advantage in power systems for making things smaller, they're more efficient. But as you get smaller in the battery realm, you're actually kind of fighting the opposite fight where you have material available to drive the reaction inherently less available energy. So as we think smaller and smaller in the realm of batteries, um, we have to sort of just fundamentally rethink the way that we design them. We've uh, come a long way from that random offhanded comment interaction and now I'm, I'm proud to be kind of more informed in the battery realm. Have you been working on different types of batteries since you started your PhD? Most of my work has been on the modeling side of lithium ion batteries, probably what I think about most day to day. And I do some experiments as well, but mostly I've been on the modeling side in terms of lithium ion batteries. And then I've also worked on some zinc air batteries, a zinc silver battery project. So I've done a few different types of batteries. Another thing that I, I briefly worked on, I actually was a part of my current lab, the P-Cool lab for a little bit during my master's before I became a PhD student and I worked on flexible batteries. So basically I talked a lot about thinking about batteries as kind of a black box that you can kind of plug into a robot. You know, how do we adapt our power systems to work well with our overall system, right? So another realm of my lab is actually soft robotics. So there's a few students in my lab working on soft robotics at the time. There wasn't really anyone working on soft robotics, but <laughs> my PhD advisor had just finished a postdoctoral appointment where his main project was kind of a, a soft robotic fish, which was published in Nature. And he also made the, this unique, it's called an electrolytic vascular system. So basically a flow battery, which powered the fish. And one of the pro first projects I worked on was sort of just how do we make the, that system a little bit better? And so it was a, a smaller focus project I was a master's student. I didn't know how long I was going to be there, but essentially the overall goal was making batteries more flexible because, you know, if you have a soft robot and you power it with like a double A battery, it kind of defeats the whole purpose of having a soft robot. <laughs> Other than soft robots, what are the applications of flexible batteries? Flexible batteries could be helpful in situations where there's not necessarily that much room on board. And I guess flexible is not the best word for that, but if you wanna have a battery that's an arbitrary shape, it doesn't necessarily need to be soft, but like arbitrarily shaped power systems are generally helpful for, if you think about when you're designing, for example, a robot and you, you found spots for all of your electronics, you found spots for all of your sensors, and you don't wanna have to designate extra space that's again, like this block in the corner for your battery. So if you could imagine you know, maybe your battery is some sort of weird S shape that kind of just takes up the rest of the space in between the electronics on the robot. That might be really helpful. How does your background in mechanical engineering help you with your research in battery sciences? In my day to day, a benefit of having a background in mechanical engineering when I do, I do actually do a lot of chemistry is that I can design 
setups. So if I'm trying to do a specific chemistry and I can set up my little electrodes and you know maybe I could CAD or 3D print a unique holder for whatever configuration I want. And I think that that's been very helpful, but that's a little bit specific. I think in the bigger picture and something that I talked with my advisor about when I was applying is that I have the ability to not only like study the fundamentals of like a unique battery configuration, but thinking about how does that interact with the other parts in whatever system is going to be powering it and kind of having that background of like, I could make a tiny demo robot and do the soldering and myself if I wanted to, because I, I had that experience previously. So I think that that's cool perspective, I guess. I, I do spend a bit more of my time thinking about chemistry, but Essentially, I mean, I guess the goal is that once I have proof of concept for, you know, a new battery, then you do want to do a cool demo, right? Like everyone likes the nature paper that has like a fun little video. And so if I could integrate my mechanical engineering background to turn my battery into a more interesting demonstration via some sort of mini robot, etc., that would be a little bit cooler than just having a battery light up a light bulb to show that it works. How do you evaluate the quality of a research question? The quality of a question, I have a twofold answer for that. So the first thing that I think about is, is answering this question going to provide interesting and useful insights for other people in the field to continue and to advance their work? So for example, I could do something that's like a lot of commercial lithium ion batteries are made via coin cells. So they're those like circular little discs that you buy and they're a little bit more expensive than your double A's. And if I were going to, you know, do work that said we can take these lithium ion batteries and, you know, if we could make them 500 microns thick, then we would, they would do a lot better, right? If I like proposed that, that and had a whole paper that was like, all right, we're going to solve this by taking these current commercial batteries and just making them like 20 times thicker or something. And that's great, I guess, except for that there are a lot of reasons why we don't make traditional batteries 500 microns thick. Like there are inherent phys fundamental physical limitations to why this isn't done currently, right? So perhaps a better question would be, all right, well, what are the limitations to this existing technology? Or, or you know, given the limitations to this existing technology, how do we mitigate these in a way that we could potentially increase the thickness, right? So I think that my first point is, the question that you're trying to answer should be helpful to advance the work of other researchers in your field. The first thing that you need to identify is what is the main variable that you want to test, right? And so, for example, if the main variable that I want to test is, I think that if I combine certain chemicals, I will get a, an electrochemical reaction at this voltage, right? Um, then I mean, that's like actually a rather simple thing to test because you can run a scan, which is called a cyclic voltammogram, and it will produce a peak at a specific voltage if a reaction is occurring, right? So perhaps you want to run a set of experiments with different concentrations of various chemicals and see if there's a significant concentration where a reaction might occur, for example. And yeah, I think it ultimately just comes down to what is the variable that you want to elucidate, like what is your, your key outcome, and then what things do you need to control for? What things do you not? I think where it gets tricky is <laughs> what things do you need to control for and how do you control for them, right? So I think there are a lot of times where 
it's really tempting to just kind of dig in right away and just start doing experiments. And you'll say to yourself like, oh, I don't care about the relative humidity of my lab. Like that should not affect things. And anytime you tell yourself that's probably not going to affect my experiment, it in fact is probably going to affect your experiment. So there's the things that you know you can control for and that are quite easy to control, right? Like you can have a standardized process, like every time you measure something out, you know, you zero your scale, make sure you're, you're you know, using clean instruments, et cetera, et cetera. And then there are things that you might not necessarily think are affecting your experiment that you, or you don't know how to control for them. And that's where things can get a little bit hairy. So I, I think that it ultimately comes down to, is it worth spending the money on an instrument that can, for example, record the relative humidity in the room if you think that's affecting your experiment or worth, you know, spending even more money to get a controlled humidity environment? Or maybe, you know, there's something else wrong with your process. And I think that something that I run into a lot is if an experiment doesn't go as you hypothesized, an important question to ask yourself is, did I do something wrong in the experiment, either the setup or the execution, or is our hypothesis incorrect? And that's where things can get a little bit interesting because I feel like I'm always tempted to be like, well, I must have messed something up. Like <laughs> it didn't go as we thought it would. And therefore it's my fault. I did the experiment wrong. And sometimes that's true. And then other times you actually end up learning something. You know, I, th I think that it's actually more interesting when your hypothesis is incorrect because you have to think a little bit deeper about what's fundamentally happening and, um, you know, formulate a new hypothesis and, and test that. And you learn a lot more that way. So I've, I've learned personally the most when I've disproven my hypothesis and it hasn't been, you know, a simple experimental execution error. How long did you investigate the implementation error before you were convinced that your hypothesis was wrong? Quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> so the, what I'm alluding to specifically, I guess I can say, so I published a paper in Power Mems 2019. It's called Performance Modeling Design of High Energy Density micro batteries. And the entire reason that this paper exists is actually because, you know, I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but basically because we disproved a hypothesis and ended up finding out something really interesting. And, and it was interesting enough that we felt worth writing an you know, entire conference publication about. So essentially, I was trying to model a unique lithium cobalt oxide cathode for lithium ion batteries. And originally this project was going to be just kind of supplemental to the experiments and just kind of, you know, so you don't have to run a bunch of different experiments with various variables. Can we just make a model and then optimize our battery design for the best performance, which in this case was energy density, uh, both gravimetric and volumetric. And essentially we started out hypothesizing that we could adapt existing battery models. They're a lot out there. And there's one pretty standard one, which was developed based on a paper by John Newman. And basically we thought we could just kind of tweak a few things and adapt that existing infrastructure to our unique cathode and it would work. <laughs> and so I think I spent a lot of time, it's hard to say like how much time I spent thinking my experimental setup was wrong because there was a lot of time kind of tweaking the existing model and, and you know, learning new things along the way, kind of adjusting parameters, getting some better experimental data and all of that stuff was, was ultimately helpful. But at the end of the day, we realized that there was a fundamental 
physics physical difference between you know how traditional batteries are modeled and how we should be modeling these cathodes and that resulted in us having to basically start over and make an entirely new model with a different set of fundamental assumptions and so i think yeah it was it was kind of a combination of both there was definitely some improvements to be made that carried over but ultimately it was you know our hypothesis that we could just take this existing model and kind of tweak it being wrong led to us really thinking about like what was going on in the physics and and we learned that you know essentially for these really dense cathodes that we were trying to model electrolyte transport isn't as important and we could you know kind of we'd have to rethink that and focus more on on solid state lithium ion transport as a final question what are the major problems within your field and what progress can we make in the next year the next year it's funny a year sometimes doesn't feel like that much time um <laughs> but i think probably one of the most pressing questions in our i mean the, the, the biggest question that everyone's thinking about, you know, in the battery field, right, is it's either energy density or power density, and how do we improve it? So how much, I, I like to think of energy, when I talk about energy and power, um, I think about it as like, energy is kind of how much stuff do you have and power is how quickly can you extract it, right? And everyone, you know, when you think about electronics that are powered by batteries, you kind of want both, right? You want to be able to be on FaceTime and still have your phone last as long as it does, even if it's doing nothing in the background. And that's not just really how it works. You can't sprint a marathon, for example, but we are seeking for improvements in both realms, right? Like if we wanna ha electrify the grid, for example, or you know, advance electric vehicles, we need more of both, right? We need, we need electric vehicles to be able to drive fast enough that people still wanna buy them, uh, although within the speed limit. And we also need, electric vehicles to be able to drive, you know, over 500 miles on a single charge. So I think that the biggest question is, how do we get better performance per footprint and per weight? Weight is really important. And, you know, a lot of the things that people are working on right now in terms of, you know, trying to sprint a marathon, for lack of a better comparison, like how do you have energy and power is on this fundamental level of, I talked a lot about ion transport, which is just like, where are when your chemistry when your chemical reaction is taking place your ions and electrons are moving around in your battery right ions are traveling through your battery and electrons are traveling through your external circuit to produce electricity right and ultimately where power comes from is how quickly can you get get your ions and electrons where they're going a recent advancement in power is thinking about on the nanoscale how do we get these transport distances to be shorter and you know, a big thing that a lot of people are working on is kind of this idea of interdigitated electrodes, which is just like, if you take a battery and basically um, have two zigzags intersecting, and then, because you have your, your cathode and your anode or your plus and minus, for example. And so if you can, on the small scale, every time you zoom in, the distances that your electrons and ions need to travel is actually quite short. And then you can just kind of stack up this material in the third dimension, you can get fast ion transport, which means high power because things don't have to move very far to get where they're going. But then you can get high energy because you can just add more stuff, for lack of a better word, by you know just stacking more things in the y direction. So that's something that a lot of people are working on, and that's why I like to think about you know restructuring battery architectures because we can't just keep making these like little black boxes. 
you want as much of your battery to be the active material as possible, right? And there's a lot of packaging on standard batteries, right? Double A's, like if you actually take that apart, it's just a lot of extra packaging because safety. But there's only so far you can go with minimizing packaging. So at a certain point, you kind of have to rethink the, the structure of the battery. So I think that, yeah, the biggest thing that, that everyone's working on is just how do we get better energy and power? Can we get them at the same time? Or customizing batteries for specific systems. Like I talked about earlier, like there's not necessarily one solution that fits everything. Like sometimes if you want, if you just want to put a sensor on a bridge and let that sit forever, you're going to need a different battery than if you want to have a robot swimming around in the ocean. Those are all things that I think are important and hope to work on. Thank you so much for joining us. I really look forward to seeing what you will accomplish in the battery science. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me on. This was really fun. I look forward to continuing to listen to you guys talk about research questions because I think this is a really valuable thing to be talking about. That's it for this week's episode of the Scientific Method Podcast. We hope you learned something from this week's guest. If you have a researcher in mind you'd like us to interview, we would love to hear from you. Please leave us a comment below. I'm Angela Chen. And I'm Mitch Fogelson. See you next time.